Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, Tamara, you know, I've had you to dinner at my house on many occasions. I just want you to know I would never serve you a wilted Caesar salad. It's unimaginable that you would serve me a wilted Caesar I salad. I would never. I don't know why the Chinese chose to serve wilted Caesar salad to Rex Tillerson and the president and others who were there. Um, if I did, however, I would also not command you to eat it. <laughs> would you ever command me to eat? I don't eat? think I would command you to eat anything. I'm pretty sure I would never command anyone to eat anything. I so, think even if I had a child, I wouldn't command him to eat things. I would be a very bad parent in that do regard. You, do you think President Trump was instructing Rex Tillerson on the diplomatic protocol of, of not refusing food from his Chinese hosts? I, uh, I think he doesn't really have much of an appreciation for diplomatic protocols, so I'm going to go with no. <laughs> okay. We also know that the president himself does not consume much greenery, so why would he insist that Rex eat his salad? Maybe he wanted to see if it was poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he just wanted to make Rex eat the salad. You know what? I think that's it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what a guy. What a guy. He wanted to make sure he had his vitamins because yeah. he needed vim and vigor to be Secretary of State. Needs high energy. <laughs> He's just a low energy guy. Too low energy. No stamina. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Rex Eat the Salad edition. I'm Shane Harris, carnivorous reporter. I am just back from Austin, Texas, South by Southwest. I ate a lot of meat, not much salad. <laughs> you were highly carnivorous? I was highly carnivorous. In fact, it was like, that's one of the great things about Austin. It's wonderful, actual Tex-Mex food. Like, we think we have Tex-Mex food. Oh, no, we do it's, not. It's really, it's, 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 but it is, it's a lot of meat, you guys. It's so much meat. Oh, it sounds like you really hated it. Too. I just it was just awful. I'm so glad I'm yeah. back here in you the poor land. Poor thing of, to have to go to South by Southwest. Oh, just Ooh, craving a good bad. wilted salad all time. <laughs> <laughs> or not. Uh, we are here in the Jungle Studio with my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis and our special guest Scott Anderson, fellow at Brookings, formerly of the State Department. Hi, guys. Hi, nice to meet you. Also a vegetarian. I also a there. vegetarian. So fair warning. Now we, you've probably I have had, no sympathies for your Austin you've eating. You've probably habits. had your fair share of wilted Caesar salads. Sadly, sadly, yes. Yeah, <laughs> one or two it, in Austin, but perhaps, it's not on like occasion. A, oh no, well they don't know how to make <laughs> salad in Austin. It's probably not a delicacy to vegetarians. Like you do, like a crisp salad. Indeed, if I can get my hands on one, if at yeah. all possible. Have yeah. the Chinese served you wilted salad? Not that I can recall, but I spent most of my time in the Middle East, so uh -huh. on occasion there. Yeah. yeah. Well, Rex is going to have a lot of opportunities to be eating salad back in Texas, just to bring that full circle. Mm -hmm. uh, this week on the podcast, in case you missed it, Rex Tillerson is out at the State Department, and Mike Pompeo will leave the CIA to take his place. The most telegraphed cabinet shift right? in history. <clears throat> I mean, like, if this were an episode of The Apprentice, it would not get high ratings. No, because it's like the plot arc that you saw from the very beginning right. of the season. Like we all Hello? know this. People would say it was rigged. <laughs> yeah. 
So rigged. Yeah, we were all caught a little bit by surprise, or at least the State Department and most of the media was. Yeah. So, like, shocked but not surprised? I don't know. We didn't know it was Shocked but not odd. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Trademark that. Uh, also on this show, the British government blames Russia for a brazen poisoning plot, but President Trump, mm, not so sure. And Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee wrap up the Russia probe. Oh, that was easy. <laughs> all right. Problem solved. Do you think they had that that was easy button? Uh, they had that and next to the no collusion button. Oh, okay. <laughs> right next to That's just a They're macro a in their word processor. It's just like a little code yeah. key and it just types out no collusion. <laughs> Control F N. <laughs> All right. Let's, uh, let's start with the, the shakeup at Foggy Bottom. So, um, uh, Rex Tillerson, as, as we say, this obviously quite telegraphed. There's still, I think, well, tomorrow, maybe we start with just like, what do we absolutely know now about the sequence of events? Because there was initially some reporting, uh, actually, I think it was in the Post, that the word had gone to Tillerson on Friday, but it wasn't necessarily made entirely clear. Now we do think, I think, pretty clearly that Kelly had been trying to telegraph to Tillerson, you know, hey, you might be getting a tweet, you need to come home. My read on this was basically, you tell me what you think, <clears throat> Rex Tillerson Probably wasn't completely surprised he was getting fired, but his attitude was, you're going to have to fire me. I'm not quitting. Right. I think that's right. And it's, you know, he's been a funny personality in the cabinet from the get-go because, you know, Boy Scout and all that gave his first speech to State Department employees after being confirmed about his guiding principles. And yet, through much of his tenure, was willing to subject himself to significant humiliation at the hands of the president. Um, and so this man who certainly thought of himself and spoke of himself as a man of principle did not seem to operate in office as much of a man of principle, just caved over and over again until the moment of his departure, uh, when I think you're right. What we know about the chronology suggests that he was prepared to stay in his role and do his job until the minute he was explicitly told by the president of the United States to stop. Um, and it's interesting, the the timing, um, although it doesn't seem that either of these two things had anything to do with the decision to fire him, um, the two things that were going on were, number one, this long-awaited trip to Africa, which itself was compensatory. It was Rex Tillerson making up to African leaders for uh, Trump's uh, denigrating the entire continent. In sorry some about of his the shithole thing. Yeah, sorry about the shithole countries thing. We actually really care about you. And moreover, we don't want you to sell out to China. Right. So part of the kind of geopolitical competition playing out in Africa, this long-awaited trip. Um, and then uh, after uh, he came back, being very clear, Tillerson being very clear about attributing this British poisoning to the Russians when the president himself was and is as yet unwilling to do so. And I think that's right. I mean, to me, the most remarkable part about this was the incredible chaos surrounding the rollout again. This was an incredibly telegraphed move. The president mm -hmm. has reportedly been thinking about this exact switch to these exact people since at least November. Yeah. Uh, and yet no preparation seemed to be in place. It was rolled out at a period where you had Secretary Tillerson on a largely symbolic 
visit, the benefit of which only accrues if you complete the trip. Uh, not having informed prior officials, there was a lot of chaos all Tuesday morning about what would happen when Tillerson leaves, who is going to be the acting secretary of state, who would step into these different roles. And not much thought seemed to have gone into this. Uh, a little bit of thought on the CIA side, at least. They had a nominee ready to slot in, right. uh, Miss Haspel, but right. not at all on the state side. Well, and I, but I do think it's interesting that Trump announced in his tweet both Tillerson's firing and his desire to nominate Mike Pompeo to replace him. It's the first time, I think, that Trump has announced a personnel, a complete personnel change. Like, this guy's leaving. I want this guy to step in. And not just the first half of that. You know, so the chaos was a little bit less than it's been in the past in the sense that he knew who he wanted to take over the role. Um, but I think that the, that the chaos of the firing... Um, is really just of a piece with the chaotic relationship between the Secretary of State and the President over the whole past year and the chaotic nature of Trump administration foreign policy. Um, none of it has been orderly. Why would we expect this to be orderly? I think what's what's interesting to me is, you know, th there have already been so, a lot of takes on Rex, Tiller Rex Tillerson's legacy, and I think the people who are saying that his one and only legacy is his institutional devastation of the State Department, I think that's correct, largely. Um, but what's interesting to me are the differing takes that people are putting out about what Mike Pompeo may be like as Secretary of State. The people who are focused on the policy side, on the substance side, seem to be raising a lot of concerns. Um that, you know, he's going to reinforce some of the president's more impulsive tendencies, that he has these deeply Islamophobic attitudes, that um, that he's, you know, a hawk on North Korea, that he's a hawk on Iran, things like that. The people who are focused more on the institutional dimension seem to think that maybe Pompeo could be a good thing precisely because he has the confidence of the president. He might actually be able to get people nominated to senior jobs and get them through Senate confirmation. He might actually use the building um, the way he clearly was interested in using the CIA. And so some of the institutional damage that Tillerson did, some, might be repairable during a Pompeo era. I don't, but Scott, I mean, you have much closer knowledge of that dimension of the, of the Truman Building than I do, so I'm curious for your take on that. More recent, I don't know, contemporaneous, because uh, I've been gone a few years at this point. You know, but certainly my sense is that what you said is is exactly on point. You know, you've got a State Department personnel that over the last 14 months has become increasingly demoralized, uh, even though we've seen the supported reform plan really get narrowed down to things that are largely redundant with the QDER plan that's been in place for a long time about IT reform, logistics reform, bureaucracy reform, you're still seeing a de facto freezes on hiring, uh, de facto freezes on promotions and rotations, um, all of these measures that really have a day-to-day -day impact on State Department personnel and is really demoralizing. Uh, now, the extent to which this was Secretary Tillerson's initiative and the extent to which it was the White House is unclear, I tend to strongly suspect the latter predominantly. Uh, and that may not change. But hopefully, Pompeo's increasing access to the president will give him a chance, if he's willing and interested to, to go to fight for his new agency. Uh, and, you know, if nothing else, it certainly seems that he was interested in the capacity of the CIA as a director there and as a manager and took an interest in the bureaucratic management task. That may be a good sign for his tenure as Secretary of State. Yeah, I think, and I think he did. I mean, one of the things that Pompeo did that I thought <clears throat> was smart on his part um, is 
A, defended the workforce. I mean, every time he went out and talked publicly, and he did, he was a rather towards, especially in the latter half of his tenure, was a much yeah, more visible. I mean, he gave them his secret family fudge <laughs> recipe. He really That's cares. true. He does. Among <laughs> others. <laughs> <laughs> Not so secret anymore, as readers <laughs> of Lawfare will know. Um, but he, he, he made that point of really, you know, being a cheerleader for the agency. And that's a, that is one very good way to get into good of any agency. But particularly, I think, at the CIA, uh, it's important because they haven't always had that in directors. And it is an agency that's always going to attract controversy for what it does uh, in some quarters <clears throat> and, and, and really doesn't fight back very much. It's not a very proactive public affairs public relations component in that sense. But also he was close to the president. And that's another thing that makes CIA directors very valuable to the institution, um, which is not to say that um, CIA bureaucracy doesn't try and also co-opt their directors into their way of thinking. Uh, And he did, I think, find a very receptive audience at the agency and the operations directorate in particular. I mean, Pompeo is very much a forward leaner, as they like to say, Uh, was very aggressive and hawkish on Iran, on North Korea. the White House actually put out a set of talking points today uh, promoting all of the things that Tillerson had done, in it, or sorry, that Pompeo had done in his time at CIA. And one of the things they flagged was this new Iran mission center and the North Korea mission center standing those up. They kind of were already there, but, mm-hmm. you know, putting a new emphasis on them. So, I mean, I wonder if, I mean, to, to, to Scott's point, this is somebody who seems, you know, for, for all of the improbability of Mike Pompeo, you know, <laughs> former member of Congress from Kansas, now being Secretary of State, let's just stop and take that one in for a second. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but, you know, but this is somebody who seems to operate pretty shrewdly, it seems to me, within the bureaucracy and knows, like, promote your agency, have their back, certainly publicly, keep that relationship close to the president. Uh, you know, these seem to me to be things that would be to maybe even distinguish him from how Tillerson uh, was when you consider he was, you know, there gutting the place, granted, maybe ordered to do so, and had a horrible relationship with the president. So Pompeo comes in kind of as the inverse. Yeah, I think there's another dimension of contrast here, which is that Tillerson also had a horrible relationship with the congressional overseers and appropriators for the State Department and USAID because he wasn't willing to push back on uh, the OMB and the White House's desire to slash and burn the State Department budget because he wasn't putting people in key posts, including posts specifically authorized by Congress for special uh, issues, and because he wasn't spending money uh, on global engagement on the sort of counter-propaganda effort that was specifically allocated by Congress. Um, and Pompeo, both as a former member of Congress himself, but also as, as you said, a shrewd kind of institutional player, I imagine will, first of all, start out with a better foundation with members of Congress, but secondly, will know better how to interact with them and gain their confidence. And in fact, you know, I think what I'm hearing from people in the sort of D.C. policy community who work on uh, development assistance, foreign assistance um, and diplomacy is that Pompeo, when he was in Congress, had a reasonably good reputation for supporting foreign aid um, and understanding development as a tool of national security policy. And so it may be that he will not just be a, a competent institutional manager, but even a booster of uh, of these agencies whose missions 
have been so denigrated over this past year. Um, and if he even indicates that in the mildest way, I think he will be warmly embraced by the workforce at State and USAID. They're so hungry for anyone who is willing to show them the slightest bit of appreciation. I think that's probably right. I think the best place to look is to see who he's going to pull in with him. Uh, for Tillerson, a lot of people who interacted with Tillerson directly came away with a level of respect for his intellect, his seriousness with which he took the issues. But he surrounded himself with people who really kept the bureaucracy away with sharp mm -hmm. elbows and have really limited the channels of input and his engagement with the staff. And he did very little to correct that, was willing, maybe even preferred it. I think that's going to be the real thing to look for. If Pompeo tries to treat himself as a secretary as an island in a way that Tillerson sort of did, we may not see that many changes because he may not be invested in the bureaucracy the same way he was at the agency. Um, well, but we'll hopefully also have to see. We'll have to see whether Margaret Peterlin and Brian Hook, who were Tillerson's two key <laughs> kind of cement walls between Tillerson and, and the rest of the department, whether those people stay in their posts or not because they weren't Tillerson people. Yeah, they were, absolutely. you know, they came in from the deep, from the swamp, from Washington. <laughs> and so in theory, they might stay. But, you know, certainly if I were Pompeo, I would want to have a fresh start and, and bring in my own people. Um, I, I have to just circle back around on the policy stuff, though, because I, I do think that there are some interesting things to watch here, not only on the Iran deal and on North Korea, which have been getting a lot of commentary because of things that he said and did as CIA director on Russia. Um, I think one of the very interesting things about Tillerson's departure, and perhaps we'll hear more about this from Tillerson in the weeks and months to come, is that he reportedly had concluded that the Russians really were bad news, that they were not going to be effective partners on any issue we cared about, and had really, really soured on them. Pompeo himself was initially, you know, kind of reluctant to accept the icy conclusions on Russian interference in the elections. Finally, kind of pushed once he was pushed, came out and said, yes, they did this, you know, but um, has been one of those who has not been pushing for a very aggressive response. Uh, and so what are we going to see out of him in terms of U.S.-Russia relations on the broader array of U.S.-Russia issues that he'll deal with at the State Department? And then the other issue is, I think, the war on terrorism. And the State Department has this additional money uh earmarked by Congress, um, allocated from the Defense Department. It has this whole uh, role in building a narrative and working with uh, partner governments to counter ISIS propaganda and ISIS recruiting, as well as Russian disinformation. And so what's he going to do with that? You mentioned yeah. that you know, he was slow to come to embrace the intelligence community's conclusion on Russian meddling. And one of the things, and I think that's absolutely right, and the other thing I often saw him do was when pressed on this, he would say, yes, Russia interfered in the 2016 election, as they have for years. And he right. would try and link, you know. But nothing new here. Right. He would try and link sort of the, you know, the spreading of leaflets and, you know, pamphlets on college campuses in the 1970s to what was happening now, which was kind of a, a laughable connection, I think, to right. a lot of people because this is so qualitatively different what happened in 2016. And, you know, which brings me to one my, my central sort of takes on Pompeo in the, in the years of reporting on him in the agency is that he's a political operator. I mean, and he is someone, which, by the way, is something that the CIA workforce could see and I think made some people very nervous. And he is an ambitious person. Um, you know, I, I don't know that he could have plotted his career in the way that it's gone. Let's remember, too, he was slow to embrace Donald Trump in the campaign. 
and then quickly became one of his big boosters and has been very skillfully managed that relationship. I think the reason that he's been slow to comment on Russia is not because he doesn't believe it. I think it's because he knows it sets his boss right. uh, off ballistically. Sure. So, I mean, my question to you guys is, all right, <clears throat> knowing that he is a political operator, I can't see into the guy's mind, but you have to imagine if you're suddenly Secretary of State, maybe you even have higher ambitions beyond that. Does that make him immediately suspect of the State Department workforce, or are they used to people coming through who are big personalities, might have grander ambitions, maybe even fancy themselves one day occupying the White House? You know, I, I don't think that's a surprise or a new experience for anyone at the State Department. Yeah. There are very few secretaries of state in the last 20 years that don't fit that mold to some respect. All very different personalities bring very different management styles, different priorities, even within administrations. Um, but, uh, you know, the idea of somebody being ambitious and having to strike a balance on the political side while on the policy side, I, th I think is very Something from that political people, I'm sorry, that staff people at the State Department are very familiar with. Yeah. And I think we're going to get, we have two kind of bellwether events coming up um, that this transition was specifically tied to timing-wise. Um, the first one is the Iran deal, as Tammy mentioned earlier. In May, we have the next deadline from where President Trump is supposed to waive sanctions uh, to keep the JCPOA alive. And he's already said he's not going to do that until unless he gets certain demands uh, conceded to by the other parties to the agreement and by Congress. And thus far, at least my understanding is that we have not seen much progress, at least outward signs of progress on those fronts. Although there is a very intense discussion going on with the Europeans, um, with the EU3. And it's, I mean, I think it's possible that we'll get something, but I remain pessimistic. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so I think the question is, if we get to the point where we see this waiver of sanctions, uh, you know, Tillerson was skeptical of, I'm sorry, was more supportive of the UCPA, skeptical of President Trump's hostility towards it from the outset, may have been more inclined to push a little bit, try and find ways to mitigate a failure to issue the waiver. Uh, maybe Pompeo, is he willing to push back in those directions? I suspect that that reflects the State Department institutional view that Tillerson was trying to echo. Is Pompeo going to fight for that view? Or is he going to say, I'm going to concede on the political front to President Trump because he already has established views on this? President Trump was very clear. He said in his way to Air Force One yesterday, oh, I appointed Pompeo because I'm on the same wavelength as him, unlike right. Tillerson on the Iran deal. Right. So that's a really clear sign. The second one we have is these North Korea negotiations uh, that supposedly, uh, at least according to one media report, is why Secretary Tillerson cut his sh uh, trip, short, trip to Africa short to come back to help prepare for these. Because they're worried that in 10 weeks and negotiations are supposed to take place in May, it's not enough time to do a major summit between heads of state uh, that has seen very little to no ground level preparation beforehand, which seems right to me. Um, and so the question then is how Pompeo is going to approach this. Is it going to be a serious effort to engage with the State Department to say, okay, we're going to actually try and make the most of this from a policy perspective, or is it primarily going to be an effort to check the political box, help and the president on. and move yeah. on and help the president check his political obligations that he's put out there? Yeah. So I think that those are two really good issues to watch. I totally agree, Scott. I, I think on the question of Pompeo's political ambitions and how they might shape his role, two points. Number one is... Um, career State Department folks, I think, A, yes, they're used to dealing with this. And there are two ways in which I suspect they will seek to leverage the political relationships and skills and ambitions of their new secretary once he's confirmed. One is, you know, with the Hill to try and build support, get the resources they need, um, you know, increase the numbers in the senior foreign service, all the institutional constraints that they feel keep them from doing their jobs better. And number two is they know that a politically ambitious secretary is going to want his own diplomatic legacy. And they're going to try and identify 
or maybe even tussle bureaucratically over what will be the thing that he will latch onto as his diplomatic legacy. You know, um, Secretary Kerry uh, went for one legacy after another, you know, uh, but the JCPOA was his main diplomatic legacy, and he was very, very committed to it, as he was to Middle East peace, which he did not achieve. You know, so what's Pompeo going to pick up? Is he going to decide that a North Korean nuclear agreement is his, you know, uh, Super Bowl ring? Uh, is he going to pick up the Middle East peace process and poor Jason Greenblatt, who's thrashing around desperately trying to get this thing, some political capital, or is it going to be something else entirely? Uh, but I suspect he'll be looking for something. The other point I would make quickly is that, you know, it is normal to have politically ambitious people in the secretary of state job and in the in the U.N. ambassador job. And we have now two expert politicians with clear ambitions for further office in those two roles. You know, Nikki Haley clearly wants to be president of the United States, and everything she's doing in New York is setting herself up for that. Her appearance at APAC this year, I think, was yet another kind of step down that road. And I think that it it probably um, will lead to a lot of tension between the mission in New York and the State Department in Washington. Again, not at all uncommon. Um, but maybe also tension between both of those folks and the White House, because we have a president who hates to share the spotlight. Uh, before we move on to the second topic, let's just spend a couple of minutes uh, reflecting on uh, the new CIA director, uh, Gina Haspel. Wait, poor Tom Cotton. Can we I just know. spare a moment's thought <laughs> oh, for Tom, Tom Cotton's political ambitions? We have a lovely parting gift for you, however. <laughs> Steak knives. <laughs> His steak knives might be out. Actually. Right in your heart, baby. <laughs> uh, Gina Haspel, who's been the deputy director under Pompeo and is a career CIA officer, started there in '85. Is been nominated. Has been nominated to replace Pompeo. She would be the first woman uh, if she were director. Which I have to say, in the reactions, um, has seemed to be sort of almost an afterthought. I don't think that's as big of a deal uh, for people. It's sort of like, well, we've had women serving in lots of positions. Big deal historically. The bigger deal has been <laughs> what she uh, has in her past. And I'm curious to, th- to know if you guys think this will be a problem in her confirmation, um, namely that uh, she was working in the operations directorate at the time uh, that the CIA was torturing detainees. Uh, there is, I think, some dispute over whether she was physically in charge of one particular site in Thailand when both detainees underwent waterboarding. Uh, but I think she was certainly there when at least one of them was. Uh, point being, she's pretty deeply immersed um, in this in this uh, program. Um, do you guys think that becomes an impediment to her confirmation? Uh, it, it is the first time I will note that anyone who is directly involved at such a deep level with the uh, rendition, detention, and interrogation program, as the CIA calls it, has ever been grilled in an open hearing. Uh, that will be yeah. here. So that's it. we're going to be we're going to be going back to 2002 and 2003 with this thing. And Senator McCain's already been explicit; issued a statement as soon as the name came out, saying, "I'm going to grill you on this during your confirmation hearing." So we but know he didn't say he's opposing. He Not just opposing. Said he just wants to ask wants some answers questions. about it. Absolutely. Yeah. So I I think that this is this is the the person on whom you're going to see a real gap between the kind of inside the Beltway institutionalists and policy people and the politics, the political environment, because the institutionalists all look at her and say, you know, look, she, 
yes, she operated within that framework. We all now agree that was a terrible framework. It's been abandoned. There are new rules and laws in place. It's never going to happen again. So yes, you know, she deserves to be questioned about this, but we think that she'll be fine in the role. We, we trust the constraints of the institution and the laws. Um, and we're never going back to the bad old days. In political America, sorry, that totally doesn't fly. This is the same political America that just had a debate over Section 702 in which progressives were arguing against uh, reauthorization for 702, saying that it was the same as the CIA and FBI abuses of the 1970s. Okay, And U.S. senators from the progressive end of the political spectrum were making that completely ahistorical argument, ignoring the laws and institutions that have been put in place since then. I think progressives are dying to pick this issue up and use it to bludgeon the administration, to bludgeon Republicans in general over the Bush legacy, over torture, over their violations of norms and laws and institutions. All of that is going to be channeled into this confirmation hearing. And I think even Democratic senators who might agree with an institutionalist perspective are going to find it very, very hard to resist that pressure. I think that may be right. I mean, in other circumstances, other administrations, I would think they wouldn't have put this name forward without doing a fair amount of due diligence. They would have looked <laughs> into the background. They would have said, OK, we think we have a narrative here about why it's not as bad as some reports make it out to be. You Her want involvement them to limited. actually like consider these decisions? At least they make them? 48 hours in advance. Yes, if at all possible. <laughs> I have no confidence that that happened here, uh, which strikes me as a bit of a spur of the moment decision. And so I think this confirmation hearing is going to bring out a lot of information. We'll have to wait to see what comes out. And whether she really becomes a serious candidate or not, we'll have to see. Obviously, I, a serious candidate, but she has much legs. Democrats cannot let this nomination go through. If they do, if they vote for it in committee, the ones who vote for it in committee will be eviscerated by the Democratic base. So I yeah. predict this is going down. So you really we, think she's not going to become CIA director? That's what I think. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, we know she will become acting CIA director imminently because the Federal Vacancies Reform Act gives her right. 210 days, I believe it is, in which she can fill this role because she's the current deputy. And that gets extended that at a certain point. get us past the November midterm. It does not, exactly. <laughs> but I, I kind of suspect that maybe this choice was a sign that they're reticent about putting too much before Congress at the same time in confirmation hearings. So, you know, they're going to put somebody who's establishment, who's there, who's in this legal role where they can't be accused of not having an acting central intelligence director. Presumably they seem to work well. Meanwhile, they can focus on Pompeo and getting him confirmed. So you guys think that maybe this is the, the long game here is the White House is betting that possibly she's not going to make it through. So we just got to have a place filler while we do Pompeo? I don't know whether they're betting that she's not going to make it through. They may, <clears throat> they may not understand the politics on the left or they may not care. They may relish the notion of having Democrats, you know, dig themselves into this progressive uh, position. And then they can paint the Democrats as weak on national security or something or unwilling to do what's, what it takes to fight terror and protect the United States. Who yeah. knows? I'm not sure they're thinking that far ahead. I think this may be more of a short to medium term game to say, well, at least we only have to have one confirmation fight at the time, at a time. Hmm. Somewhere Tom Cotton is tenting his little steak knives. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I've now gone on the record with a prediction, so you all can beat on me if I'm wrong. I think Tom, I think Tom Cotton really totally digs your your scenario. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually, you will come calling for me again. Right. The little Machiavelli. <clears throat> can yeah. we call him that? Little Machiavelli? Sure. He's I very like tall. That. but uh, slight, The slight Machiavelli. The slight Machiavelli. <laughs> Machiavelli light. Machiavelli light. Machiavelli ish. 
I'm sure he would totally dig that. Um, all right, let's move on. We alluded to our second topic uh, in our discussion. Wait, you want to talk about other things? I know, right? I know. <laughs> it's just so your jam. Um, so there was this poisoning. <laughs> uh, a, a, a former military intelligence officer, uh, Sergei Skirpal, I hope I'm saying that correctly, uh, who had been sentenced, by the way, to 13 years in prison in Russia uh, because he was a double agent for the British government. Uh, he and his daughter, I think, are still listed in critical condition, right? Um, after they were poisoned with a military-grade nerve agent uh, in a park uh, in a town outside of London, uh, Theresa May, the British prime minister, came out yesterday uh, in a speech in parliament and said uh, the Russian government is either responsible for this assassination attempt or is responsible for letting a military-grade toxin loose in the United Kingdom. Uh, and, and very clearly said this threatened both uh, the two people who were who were severely injured in this, as well as uh, first responders, uh, as well as the British people. Uh, I think she called it, uh, Scott Crick, from unlawful use of force, yeah? That's my recollection. Right, which we'll talk about in this. Um, the, I think the, <clears throat> let's first address the, the reaction from the U.S. side, uh, which is to say that there wasn't much of a reaction, it seemed, at least from the White House. The president, not unlike his uh, hedging or, uh, or non-committal response, on Russian intervention in cyberspace in the election, also said it could be Russia or it could be any number of people. Uh, you know, is not standing with uh, the UK on this one. It seems to me like that was that was probably uh, one of the more tomorrow. I thought kind of uh, devastating examples of the way that the US UK relationship has been severely strained in the Trump administration for for. The American president not to come out and stand with the British prime minister when I think they have very, you know, uh, strongly concluded who was responsible for this. I mean, what it's like we don't trust British intelligence on this. Well, I mean, this yeah. was that was really this was really striking. So you really want to know the backstory here. Uh, Theresa May is going to give this speech in Parliament. Her intelligence community has made a clear conclusion about attribution, and she has decided that politically she's willing to make that attribution public. Okay, Does she not give the United States a heads up that she's going to do that and ask for their support? If she, if she doesn't do that, is that because she doesn't want to get a no, uh, because she doesn't want to share the intelligence behind the attribution? Um, or maybe she did call and share the attribution and ask for support and got a no. You know, e either way, um, it is evidence of a real breakdown in the special relationship, the U.S.-U.K. relationship. Either way, I think it is evidence of a significant erosion of trust in the intelligence cooperation between the two governments, which is very worrisome. You know, even beyond this particular incident or confronting the Russians on a whole host of misbehaviors, it's, it's extremely concerning to think that our intelligence cooperation with our closest intelligence partner is that degraded because we rely on that cooperation and so do they to prevent a lot of bad stuff around the world and to do a lot of homeland defense. And, and so if that trust is eroded, that's really, really upsetting. Um, so I think until we know more of the backstory, it's hard to know which side the trust broke down on in this particular instance. But that it is broken is, to me, without question. Scott, what's it mean from your perspective, having 
you know, recently worked in the State Department. What is the importance on the on a day to day working level of that kind of cooperation between the U.S. and the U.K. And you know, what are the costs of it not functioning properly? I mean, it's hard to understate the the central role that the U.S. U.K. relationship plays. I think for both states, national security apparatus, certainly between intelligence sharing arrangements, cooperation on a variety of diplomatic and military measures, just constant consultation, constant consultation, and it's very strange to see a level of disconnect at all. Um, Obviously, this was fast paced, uh, and you know, the White House made sympathetic statements, even though they weren't willing to sign on this attribution statement. But it does set the United States apart from other UK allies with with whom with whom it has a much tenser relationship, like the European Union, who came out with a statement saying that they agree that it seemed most likely Russia committed this act. They didn't or sign Rex off Tillerson on Tillerson coming out and saying. <laughs> or Rex Tillerson, for that matter, <laughs> among Rex people the president has tension with. Um, it is a real it's, – it's, it's, it's hard to understate. I'm hesitant to take this one incident as too much of a bellwether. Um, but the fact that there would be any daylight between what is not only the UK government, a traditional ally, but the Theresa May Brexit government, the government that should be the easiest government for the Trump administration to get along with right. in the world. That's a great point. Yeah. Uh, you know, and yet they still have these points of disconnect. It's really pretty shocking to or see. Or at least over Russia. Yeah, I mean, that's where over they seem Russia. To really Particularly over down. Russia. Yeah. And, and so you wonder, so, you know, the UK government is announcing now that they're planning to expel, I think, 23 Russian diplomats right. from the UK in response to this. Um, and, you know, and this is, it seems to me, one way to read it, uh, setting British domestic politics aside is that May doesn't want to do less than Obama did, right? May, and May wants to be seen to do more than Trump has done. She wants to respond quickly uh, and firmly. Um, I don't know how many uh, Russian diplomats there are officially in the United Kingdom, but 23 is probably a significant proportion of that number. Um, And no doubt the Russians will retaliate and expel an equal number of Brits. Um, And so I I find it interesting that whatever her other calculations may have been, that's also one implication is in comparison to both Obama and Trump, she wants to be harder on. I, I think that's right. And she's they, she actually has a growing laundry list of responses that we've seen. That expelling is certainly, I think, one of the most notable ones. They also canceled invitation to the Russian foreign minister that had been mm-hmm. outstanding. And they're not uh, sending dignitaries to the World Cup. Not sending dignitaries yeah. to the World Cup, exactly. They indicated they're heightening scrutiny levels of financial transactions and other mm-hmm. transactions with Russian nationals and I presumably other associates of Russia, which sounds like it's not a big deal, but could have a major impact on the ease of, tra- of regular business transactions. So that can actually be a major step. Well, and, and there isn't it the case that coming. there's a lot of Russian money in and out of it's London? a lot of Russian money in, La- mm, in, a lot of in London. Yeah. With some property. <laughs> yeah, exactly. so it could have some significant impact on targeted individuals inside Russia. That they as don't well. have access to British financial markets. Absolutely. And they have said that they're also going back and reopening the books on all these investigations. I mean, an aspect of this that I find so shocking is that, you know, this attack occurred or this alleged attack occurred not much more than a year after a UK commission determined the Litvinenko assassination in 2006 was most probably committed by the Russians and authorized by President Putin. Um, it's hard to imagine a more bold and reckless assertion of one's to actually do it again <laughs> as soon as that finding comes out, as soon as it's fresh in people's minds again. And there's a clear tie between it. I suspect that that's also, for domestic reasons, a reason why the May government may feel the need to respond. Also because the Litvinenko assassination was 10 years ago now. Right. And so this is an opportunity 
opportunity to bring back those old wounds. And from the perspective of Russia, you have to ask, why was this worth it at this point? This seems like a predictably strong response given this context. It's a strange step for them to take. Okay, which is, I think, an interesting question and, and one I hope we'll follow up on in future episodes is sort of what is it that the Russians are doing? Are we really seeing a more assertive policy from Russia in all along all sorts of dimensions of which this is maybe just a piece? I, I wanted to come back to this uh, use of force mm. question because I the phrasing was very, very striking. And I think to those of us who are not familiar with the public international law and this, like, what are the implications of using exactly that language? Yeah, absolutely. It's very calculated language. And I will say there's a great explainer on this up by Ashley Diggs, professor at University of Virginia Law School and Lawfare right now, for people who want to dig a little deeper. But essentially, you know, the UN Charter um, establishes a right to self-defense in regards to certain types of uses of force. But those are called armed attacks. And armed attacks are unlawful uses of force, but of a particular severity or caliber. Uh, and where the line is exactly between an unlawful use of force and an armed attack is, is subject to debate and disagreement uh, among different circles. But in choi- choosing to use unlawful use of force, uh, uh, Theresa May is putting the Russian actions in the bucket of actions that are unlawful and maybe an armed attack, but aren't necessarily. And that means she's not yet asserting the right to assert self-defense under Article 51 of the UN Charter, which would mean the use of force, the use of military force in response. Um, instead, what we're seeing are actions like we've seen with this laundry list of responses where there are diplomatic measures, a variety of actions that the United Kingdom can take, but that don't violate any of its outstanding international legal obligations. Um, so expelling diplomats, we may see economic sanctions and similar measures. Uh, Ashley Deeks raises the point that you may also see the UK pursue a more severe range of measures called countermeasures, which is where they actually stop performing under existing international legal obligations to try and compel Russia to you know, come back into alignment with its own obligations. Uh, the exact structure of those, we'll have to see how that comes out. It's not uh, something that there's super clear laid out rules for how to apply. There are a set of rules, but it's, it's, it's been applied a lot of different ways over the years. Um, and then you have the question of the use of force. You know, Could Theresa May claim this is an armed attack? Could they justify the use of force? Well, it seems unlikely they would actually ever come to blows with Russia. It'd be a very high-risky maneuver. Uh, but the armed attack is also the threshold for Article 5 under NATO, uh, under the NATO agreement with the Atlantic Treaty, in which case, if they wanted to get this sort of commitment arise rise to a level of a 9-11 type event, uh, maybe they have an inclination to go there. Uh, there's a you know, robust debate happening on Twitter right now as to whether an assassination like this could be an armed attack. There's a lot of reasons to think it couldn't. Um, but we do know that when the United States launched attacks against Iraq in 1993 in response to the attempted assassination of former President George H.W. Bush, they claimed that that assassination attempt was an armed attack uh, and launched attacks invoked Article 51. And two governments that supported that measure were Russia and the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, And so there's at least some precedent floating out there for somebody claiming this rises to that level. And of course, this attack happened on UK soil. It may have affected up to 500, maybe more UK citizens. So there's an argument there. I seriously doubt that Theresa May will feel the need to go to that level. Um, but, you know, if there's pushback uh, from the United States, pushback from other fronts, maybe that's one way she will choose to escalate the issue is by pursuing, claiming an, or making an Article 5 under the NATO treaty type claim. Uh, well, it's possible. It seems unlikely to me, but possible. Certainly, if more British citizens had fallen ill as a result of this, it would have it would have maybe gone down that road. Um, and maybe that's why she opened the door um, is to sort of say, if you do this again, right, um, you did this in a way that had a wider impact. 
uh, and we're gonna we're gonna call you on that. I think that's absolutely right, and we have to wait to see what the impact actually is. I mean, we've seen already a major economic impact, at least on this community that's affected by it. Supposedly, uh, UK authorities have been killing animals that have been walking oh, through mm. the barred area, and so there's obviously have a very serious con- concern about the health impacts that may yet echo out from this. I can't, so I don't think yeah. the story's over yet. I can't help but thinking. <clears throat> well, a I can't help but thinking, what if they had done it here and how that response would have gone? Um, <clears throat> but if this had been, uh, I don't even know if the modality of this particular attack could even lead to such an outcome, but let's just say they meant to kill this one guy and his daughter and something went wrong and they killed 40 people uh, and there was some <clears throat> you know, massive kind of loss of life here and it looked like something we would equate like with a terrorist attack. I mean, I would just say, I would just presume at that point there would be you know, international outcry, um, you know, the, the whole response to this thing would be so different. So really what we're talking about here is that sort of that, that gray line between it being this kind of very tense but almost kind of like diplomatic response versus something that would look like you responding to a, a, an act of war, that that line may not be, you know, is <clears throat> is pretty thin. And it, 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 if this had been something that Russia had done that had gone terribly wrong or was less um, – uh, discriminating or discerning in its targeting, we could be talking about a, a much more volatile and serious situation, which it seems to me just underscores the unbelievable recklessness of what the Russians are doing in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, maybe there's a message in there from the Russians. You compare this to, you know, suspected assassinations of Russian officials elsewhere, such as, uh, you know, the former Russian official who fell down a slide of stairs in DuPont of a suspect of being beaten to death by Russian agents a few years ago. You know, the use of these chemical agents or a radiological uh, agent in the case of Litvinenko I suspect it's intended to send a message, yeah. which is about the vulnerability of some of these states to Russian operations. Right. It's, I mean, you know, knocking somebody off by pushing them down the steps or out of a window or shooting someone is so qualitatively different and, and frankly, less threatening than using, you know, radioactive isotopes Absolutely. and poisons. It's just, it's really It's really terrifying. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's move on to our last topic. Um, nothing to see here. No collusion. Wrapped up, we can all go home now. The House Republicans have decided uh, to suspend their probe on the intelligence community into our intelligence committee into Russian meddling. And... You know, it's so much <laughs> less complex than the Benghazi attack, really, that it, it does, doesn't take very much time to delve into the details of a years-long, persistent, covert campaign to intervene in American domestic elections. Who knew it could be so easy? Yeah, I mean, you invite some people in, they all tell you everything you need to know, and it's the absolute truth, and that's it. Uh, so Democrats, predictably, are responding um, uh, to this uh, by saying, essentially, that, uh, you know, well, I think everyone understands the, the, the investigation went off the rails in a partisan sense a long time ago. I mean, my question is, at this point, I mean, do we basically now just stop paying attention whatsoever to the House Intelligence Committee's probing of this? The Democrats are going to continue releasing findings and as much as they can. But it seems to me that this is pretty much the death knell of whatever serious investigation, if ever there was a really serious one, was going on in the House. Well, so first, I think folks on this podcast have said from the beginning that the House investigation was not likely to be meaningful or serious or rigorous, or bipartisan, and that the meaningful investigation on the Hill was on the Senate side. So I think that continues to be true. 
Um, we've talked a lot about Devin Nunes and his role here. Um, but I think that, and, and we've also talked about the persistent polarized politics of this so that regardless of what objective analysis may yield in terms of the merits of this investigation, um, the partisans on either side are perfectly ready to be convinced by the things that their side is selling them. And I don't think that's changed. What I do think is interesting is the the fractiousness within the Republican um, part of this committee just in the last couple of weeks, particularly in the form of Trey Gowdy, uh, who has come out, you know, contradicting his chairman um, more than once now, uh, including on this conclusory report. And, you know, it's kind of funny. You never think of congressional committees having concurring opinions. Um, but that's kind of what Trey Gowdy did here is he wrote a concurring opinion that that um, distinguishes uh, on one particular issue, which is whether the Russian interference intended to help the Trump campaign. Uh, and Chairman Nunes's report says, no, it didn't. And Trey Gowdy says, yes, it did. We should also say that the intelligence community concluded in its <laughs> that yes, it report did. That yes, it did. Right. I, I I think I think that's right. And I the thing that strikes me is that I'm just wondering what the strategic logic is behind of the Republicans or whoever it is that's supporting this, mm-hmm. because we still have two investigations that are ongoing that are going to see new, more information coming out. Obviously, more developments, more indictments, uh, more questioning of witnesses, more facts coming out. And for this committee to have foreclosed the investigation at this stage just strikes me as it, however credibility it may have now, it's going to get less and less credibility, I think, even by more inclined people as time goes on. I know why. I know why. Why? <laughs> because Cam's the- raising your hand here. <laughs> Mr. Like Cotton, Mr. Cotton, <laughs> for all you youngins out there who don't get the reference. Um, so I- – I mean, look, those other investigations will not be complete by the midterms. And this one is done now so that the Republican machine and all of its associated media outlets can push these conclusions to the faithful in advance of the primaries and get their narrative fixed in the for the congressional campaigns. To me, that's what this was always about, and that's what it's about. and uh, And the substance of it and its credibility to anyone in the center or anyone unpersuaded, already unpersuaded of the Republican position is totally irrelevant to their calculation. Uh, yeah, I suspect that's right. I'm just curious why why they need to foreclose the invest to close the investigation as opposed to issuing an interim report. Well, it's interesting because or take some other stuff. To, your, to your point, Scott, I mean, like Devin Nunes has managed to use this investigation as a way to throw all kinds of sand exactly. in the gears of the, the other investigations and in the whole narrative about potential Russian conspiracy with the Trump campaign. So he is kind of like punting at this point. It's like this is the last this is this is the last shot that he has. You would think he might, you know, save it for another moment that was a little bit more opportune, but you know, we've 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 spent so many hours on this podcast trying to figure out what Devin Nunes is actually up to that you know, who knows? I'm not even sure he knows sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Know? I mean, I I think we've talked so much about Devin and we still don't know what to do about Devin. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one wonders whether just looking at the witnesses they've had, who was left that they might actually be able to get in, especially now that Mueller's own investigation seems to be accelerating in a way that, you know, the coordination issues get harder and maybe the, the hill gets a little more constrained. But also a number of these witnesses, it, it hasn't played out 
in the nar- as neatly as Nunes might like in terms of the narrative that comes out of these um, these uh, uh, depositions. You know, and the Democrats have been able to use these witness appearances and get the transcripts released in a way that ends up embarrassing the Republicans for their own behavior. Um, so I think it might just be a calculation that the marginal return on keeping this thing going is really, really small at this point. That may be right. My view is that no Nunez is good Nunez. Oh. So the more time we have to talk about other topics, <laughs> the more excited I am. <laughs> did you know he was going to do puns when you invited him on here? I did not, but, you know, that is the perfect segue. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't we move on to uh, to object lessons? Um, Scott, you're the guest, so would you like to, to share first? Absolutely. Well, I don't have my object with me because I'm not allowed to take it out of the room I held it in. And I I don't have it with me because I'm not allowed to take take pictures of it, so I don't have pictures of it either. Um, But yesterday I held in my hands uh, a report that the Trump administration was required to file by the National Defense Authorization Act last year, which is supposed to set out its legal and policy framework for war powers and the use of force, uh, updating a December 2016 report that the Obama administration left out. for reasons not entirely clear to me, uh, the Trump administration has elected not to release this report publicly like its predecessor. Um, but the report was filed with Congress yesterday. And you are, as a member of the public, able to go down to your congressional committees and examine many of these reports. Uh, and so me and some intrepid uh, Twitter friends of mine uh, <laughs> went down and looked over the report yesterday. And hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, I will have a summary up on Lawfare for people to review. So hopefully we'll get so a little you slice. Can report on it, yeah. I hope so. <laughs> uh, so we will uh, hopefully see, have a slice into uh, the Trump administration's thinking on some of these topics. So it's a hidden object, but you can actually go and hold it in your hands. Exactly. It's a transparency report so transparent, almost no one can see it. Wow. So I forget the name of the author who wrote the book about you know getting rid of your extra stuff, and you have to take everything you own and hold it in your hands oh, for yeah. a few seconds and see if it g- brings you happiness. Did it bring you happiness? It did, indeed, oh. and continues to. Aww. You know, it's funny because the, the White House put out, uh, as they often do when they send notifications to Congress that there's a report forthcoming. An email went out from the press office yesterday and said, herewith is the you know policies that this report. And it wasn't attached. It was one of those moments where you wanted to reply back, like, hey, forgot the attachment. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. It was one of those little things. It was really like, wait, where did it go? Where is it? It's not here. Um, tomorrow, would you like to share your object? Um, So my object is, um, for the moment, still prospective or virtual, but uh, on Sunday morning, it will be uh, hundreds, uh, perhaps even thousands of people uh, gathered on Freedom Plaza uh, in downtown D.C. for the annual Scope It Out Colorectal Cancer Alliance 5K. No, you may not. Will they be scoping it out while they're running? There, there will be a large inflatable model of your colon. Oh God! So, if you want to understand, (laughs) a colon. (laughs) (laughs) If you want to get a look at how to protect your colon and how to make sure that your colon is healthy. Stop laughing. This is serious business. No, um, I'm running uh, as part of a team that was put together in memory of Sean Brimley. I I spoke on the podcast a month or so ago about my colleague Sean Brimley at the Center for New American Security who uh, died far, far, far too young of uh, colon cancer that went 
undiagnosed. And, uh, and so these guys are funding the research, they're funding the, um, the screenings and getting the word out. Uh, and so I'm getting the word out to all of you, even if you think colons are funny, even Shane. Even if I'm childish. Even if you're, you think that it's all just one big poop joke. <laughs> and because you think that, I'm going to go ahead and tell you the name of our team. Do it. In memory of Sean Brimley. What's that? Turd Offset. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better than the joke I was going to make. Just that DC's filled with giant assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and they all need screening for colon yeah. cancer. Before you tweet at me, I know the colon's are different things. Just <laughs> work with it. That is actually legitimately awesome, Tammy. And uh, and would you remember your, uh, uh, sharing your reflections on uh, your uh, friend and colleague who left us all too soon. So thank you. Run well, run fast. Thank you. Uh, I'm sharing a glass that is sadly empty. As I am not, not for long. <laughs> from the Harvard National Security and Law Association, which was brought to us here today. And it has a lovely, as so many great law review articles do, <clears throat> this set of footnotes underneath referring to the Youngstown decision. And on the back, you have maximum authority, zone of twilight, lowest ab, which those familiar with the decision will, will know what those mean. But even if you don't, you don't have to because they're marked off on uh, as a demarcations to how full the glass is. Lowest, lowest ab, ab, it's what, about two jiggers? Lowest ab is jiggers? like a respectable like yeah. cocktail. Zone of twilight, I will say, is up so far on this glass. <laughs> After this podcast. Put you in the twilight. <laughs> You may need the zone of twilight yeah. to absorb all this news. I mean, if you drank the amount of scotch that is at maximum authority, I may mean, I hope you filled out your will. <laughs> this is, there are some serious drinkers at the Harvard National Security <laughs> Law Association. <laughs> you guys are not messing around. Thank you very much. Um, well, I will not, I will not take this home with me because I'm trying to cut down on my consumption. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave this here for Ben. Uh, that's, a, that's a lovely object and, um, and something to aspire to. Levels of maximum authority. <laughs> oh, that brings us to the end of the podcast, you guys. So sad. Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page somewhere where Ben is. I don't know where Ben is right now. He's certainly somewhere. not off transferring our show page. <laughs> never. <sighs> never doing that, whatever he's doing. You can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a review, ideally five stars, ideally that maximum authority level. That's what we need. Five stars for maximum authority. Please don't drink maximum authority while you're writing our review. <laughs> if you are an angry drunk. You know, if you're a happy drunk, go right ahead. Just be effusive. <laughs> Our audio engineer, I, he didn't kill over completely from laughing uh, this week, is Matthew Kahn. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Rex Tillerson and the Little Caesars. Mm. It's a little better than Wilted Caesars. Yeah. Like the Little Ooh, Caesars like actually it. sounds yeah. like a band name. Yeah. I bet they were small salads. <laughs> you think it was just like this like, giant plate, plate of like Wilted? Oh, that would be sad. <laughs> I wouldn't eat that either. Romaine yeah. lettuce is supposed to be crisp. So but I would, wilted, I would push it around with my fork so it looked like I was eating it. Oh. Maybe it was more like meant that's to be That's the like... diplomat in you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm trained, okay? I'm a professional. <laughs> eat the salad, damn it. <laughs> Uh, uh, Sophia Yan, where she presented with wilted greens at a Chinese diplomatic function. I'm pretty sure we go and meet them. Yeah. yeah. I think Sophia is pretty much omnivorous. Yeah. yeah. In, her, in her many appetites. 
<laughs> On behalf of my friends Tamara Kaufman Wittis and our special guest Scott Anderson, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening. Bye bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.